Short term right now, yeah, we're raising prices. But every time you raise your prices, you introduce competition. So you better also be developing whatever your next future concept is or your next iteration of your current concept because people are going to start to get a lot more careful with where they're spending their dollars. Welcome to the Upflip Podcast. Today, we're talking to Ryan Gromfin, the restaurant boss. I'm your host, Alex Freeman, and we're going to learn how to become a business consultant in the restaurant industry. Ryan makes 35K a month from business consulting and subscription services. Ryan started consulting after a heart attack and a failed partnership led to a request for advice. He Googled, what does a consultant do? 12 years later, he's loving his life and has even released a book on restaurant operations. Today, he's going to share his strategies and answer questions like how to get started, how to land major clients like KFC, what he's focusing on now, and how he manages his business. Let's talk to Ryan. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Of course. Thanks for having me. So to get things started, what was your career before you started The Restaurant Boss, and how did you pivot into consulting? So I'd always been a chef, or my career, I guess, was restaurants as a chef. And the way I got into consulting was kind of sort of by accident. You briefly touched on it in the introduction, but I'd always been a student of like Tony Robbins and, you know, these really great personal development people. And I'd loved it, but I wasn't really sure how I would ever do anything like that. And when a partnership that I was in ended in a blaze of glory, as most partnerships do with threats of lawsuits and everything, someone that had known about the work I had done had reached out and said, hey, Ryan, do you want to come consult for us? And I said, sure. And like you mentioned in the introduction, I Googled, what does a consultant do? What do I need to bring to the first meeting? Well, blah, blah, blah. And I kind of prepped enough overnight to get me through the first meeting. And then they really liked what I said and asked me to get them a proposal by Monday. So I researched all weekend, got them a proposal. They accepted. And that's how I became a consultant. Incredible. Just, just you know, learning on the fly. That's the way to do it. So when you go in and, and work with a restaurant, um, I'm going to kind of ask you some questions about that kind of work here. Uh, what are the most common impediments to growth that restaurant owners uh, are seeing? Restaurant owners? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's between the years, right? I think we all say it. You know, the, the game is won between the years, or at least golf is a game that's played between the years. And I think most sports are. We often use the sport to business analogies because they're fun and they work, but Nothing against owners out there, and that wasn't a dig. That was just more of a human behavioral thing that a lot of times we know what we're supposed to be doing. There's just something that's not allowing us to do it or a reason we're not doing it, and maybe we're not in touch with that. So yeah, I'm a consultant. I'm also a amateur shrink. <laughs> so yeah, how much uh, psychology uh, training have you had and how much, uh, armchair psychology training have you found yourself experiencing? Armchair psychology, thousands of hours, actual psychology training, very little. To that point, what are some of the key processes or systems that, that restaurants should be putting in place to, to set themselves up for success? I use what I call like the core four and the core four are checklists, prep sheets, order guides, and build sheets. So a checklist is, do I have everything I need to prepare my station for service? A prep sheet is, do I have everything I need to be ready for maybe later today or tomorrow? The recipes are quite obviously recipes. And believe it or not, lots and lots and lots of restaurants don't have properly documented 
tested anything with recipes. They just kind of make it up as they go. It's unfortunate. And then build sheets. A build sheet is a synopsis, a picture of a menu item that has a brief description of the item, allergy information, kind of steps to put the item together, make sure it's plated properly, et cetera. Those are what I call the core four. There's dozens of others, but that's usually where we get started if a restaurant is struggling on the operational side in any form or fashion. We make sure that those are in place. Those also sort of set the tone for we're going to systematize this business and we're going to start with these. They're easier to build, easier for your team to adapt. And then once they sort of start to see the power of the systems and the processes and the procedures and the consistency that these bring, they're more open to some of the other more advanced processes. Yeah, I would I would imagine that, you know, especially a lot of owner operators in the restaurant industry are find themselves to be very, very hands on. And now suddenly we're setting up systems to bring in a team. How important is is who is on that team? And how does how do you recommend that a restaurant owner go about building that team around them? Well, who's on that team is going to be more important than anything. We spend so much time with the people that we work with. We put so much trust into them. A lot of times I'll hear people say to me, you know, Ryan, we've tried systems. They don't work. We've tried checklists. They don't work. And sure, I'll say, well, have you tried them this way? Have you tried them that way? But at the end of the day, you can build a system perfectly. You could follow my methods or anyone else's methods that have hundreds, if not thousands of successful clients using them. But if you have the wrong people on your team, if you have someone who is defiant, who doesn't want to follow rules, who wants to do everything their way, it doesn't matter how good your systems are. They're not going to be effective. They're not going to work. They're not going to be adapted. And then building out that team and retaining that team can also be a big challenge. You know, restaurant industry, famously pretty high turnover industry. So what are what would you recommend to restaurant owners to keep that staff around? So, I mean, generally, I just think we suck at taking care of our team in the restaurant industry. And I say we because I was terrible at it when I operated. I had to learn some different methods. If I don't know if we're going to get into kind of my story of how I got here and all the mistakes I made. But yeah, we're just not very good at that. It's a tough industry. We're asking people to work hard. We're asking them to work in difficult environments. I'm not going to sit here and say more difficult than any other industry. There's plenty of industries that ask the same, if not more than we do. But the reward has to be worth the the pain that we're asking our team to go through, to give up time with their family, to work on holidays, to work at nights, to work on weekends. That doesn't have to be monetarily. Sure, paying more helps. We're experiencing that right now. But we have to be able to reward our team in other ways. So the first thing I would just say is, would you work for you? Ask yourself the question right now, would you work for you? Have you created an environment where people can thrive and succeed and grow and want to come to work and want to be a part of a team. And then maybe you can't pay as much as other industries, but what can we do? What other freedoms or what other growth opportunities can we offer to people? And then kind of the last thing I would say on this, and this is something that will run through the theme of everything I do, which is you can be strict and you should be strict. A great coach is strict, but you can never be mean. And a lot of times I know I worked for and I see other people, they're just mean to their team. They think they're being strict, but they're not being strict. They're being mean. And then they get confused because maybe they realize that the team is not responding as well to them and they're not gaining their respect. So then they try to be nice. And by them being nice, they're being lenient. 
So you can be strict. You can hold your team accountable. You can have high expectations of people, but you just can't ever be mean. And are there certain traits that someone should look for in an employee when they're getting ready to bring them into the restaurant? I always say hire the smile. You know, we can teach the the hard skills. We can teach someone how to use a knife. We can teach them how to cook a dish. We can teach them how to clean a fryer. We can teach them how to greet a table and how to serve. But if they're not that team player, if we're looking for front of the house, if they don't have that natural smile and that willingness to put themselves out there and that wanting to be social and talk with people, that's going to be a lot harder to train. So too many times I see interviews set up on the hard skills. Too many times I see job postings set up on the hard skills rather than let's just look for some good, fun people that want to play restaurant with us. And then let's teach them how to do the other part of the job. So so I want to kind of pivot back a little bit into talking about one, developing the systems, but then also those insights into to building a team because it does come out of, you know, your your experience operating a restaurant. So can you give us that that kind of background and and how mistakes you may have made have led to what <laughs> I think you said we only place. had we only had 45 minutes for this podcast right <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's funny I just filmed a video for my YouTube channel it's about a 30 minute video kind of getting into depth on this story and some of the things that I'm not as proud of but you know summing it up yeah I worked in five-star hotels when I was young I, I'm a product of the food network so I was the kid who came home from school and ran home to watch food network and then cook whatever I saw on TV I went to as many restaurants of the early Food Network chefs as I could. I got all their cookbooks. Like I dorked out on that. I never thought about going into the industry. I just loved cooking at home. And then one day my dad was like, you ever think about being a chef? And I was like, nope, never thought about becoming a chef. But it planted this seed. And oh, I could just kill my dad for planting that seed. All kidding aside, I love the industry. But I read a book called Becoming a Chef by Andrew Dornberg and Karen Page. And they basically said, get the worst job you can at the best restaurant you can. Well, The best restaurant was seven blocks away from my house. It was a five-star hotel called the Peninsula Beverly Hills. I went to work there and I did the worst jobs I could at the best restaurant possible. And I learned how to do things really, really well. But one of the challenges was when I wasn't working as my career progressed and I got out of the five-star hotels, I went to work at more independent restaurants. I never realized how much of my success was from the systems that were in place I thought it was me. I was arrogant. I was young. And I made the mistakes of yelling at people because they weren't listening to me, of doing some of the things that maybe other managers did to me, like throw forks at people or make fun of them or all those things, all those horror stories that we hear. All we got to do is turn on the TV and watch Gordon Ramsay on Hell's Kitchen or whatever. Um, And I, I did all that because I didn't know any better. No one taught me how to manage. I don't know about you, Alex, but I never went to management school. And even my friends that maybe do have master's degrees in business management, they don't teach you how to manage human beings. They teach you systems and processes, but not human management, leadership, motivation, armchair psychology, like we talked about. So I had to hire coaches because I was failing and struggling in my operations in the restaurants that I was a partner at. And when it it wasn't until that, that I got sick, like we talked about, and I hired coaches for me. And they taught me better ways to manage, better ways to take care of people, better systems, better processes, what true respect is and how to gain it, what true leaders do and how to teach other people and how to develop them to become leaders. It wasn't until I started learning that stuff and seeing the results 
that's really when that first seed got into my head of, hey, one day I want to do this for other people. I just didn't know how. And then like the story I told earlier, the opportunity presented itself and I was ready to go. So what are some of those processes and steps to to developing and implementing processes within a restaurant? Well, the, the first thing for me is what I always say is manage systems, develop people. Manage systems, develop people. I personally don't believe that people can be managed or should I say want to be managed. Anyone out there listening right now, think back to a job. Maybe you're in that job right now where you are managed. You are in a department with a manager who actively manages you. Don't even worry about the word micromanage, just you're managed. Someone checks on you, checks on your numbers, checks on your performance. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of things that you wish were done differently that you said to yourself, when I'm a manager, I won't do this. When I'm a manager, I won't do that. But after thousands of years of us saying, when I'm a manager, I won't do that, I don't think we've really evolved much further because every manager eventually does the same things that their previous manager did. It's sort of like parenting, right? I'll never do that to my kids. And then you try never doing that and it doesn't work and you go back to doing it the way your parents did because it worked. Whether it was right or wrong, it worked. So the first thing to me is I don't believe people can be managed. I think systems can be managed. People need to be developed. People want to be developed. People want to grow. They want to get better. So for me, the first thing is I stopped trying to manage people a long time ago and I started creating systems. And then if people weren't following the systems, that's not a management issue. That's a development issue. That's a let's sit down and talk about what types of behavior you're exhibiting and how we can change that behavior to better follow the systems which now when we get into kind of that leader role, that leadership role, ultimately it's about their success, not yours. So I find that one of the things that people struggle with, that managers struggle with is they've not adopted the role as a leader. And in order to be a good leader, you have to know what your people's goals are. What do they want? What's important to them? And then when you're coaching and when you're developing, it's structuring those lessons in a way that serves them. If everyone on your team achieves their goals, you're going to achieve your goals by a mile. So in that in that regard, like so how do you start the process of building a system that is going to serve serve the restaurant employees? What are the what are the steps involved? The first thing I like to do is find out what's frustrating. I'll get on the phone with an owner and say where are you frustrated? What's challenging to you? Write down a list or just give me a list right now. And they'll start rambling on. This person came in late that day and they come in late a lot. And this person never changed shifts properly. And this person, whatever. And then we'll just kind of go through those and start figuring out why is that happening? If you have someone who's missing a shift because, or they're requesting time off and then missing a shift because they couldn't find someone to cover it, Somewhere in there is a broken system. Somewhere in there is a system that's not properly giving people the right amount of time ahead for their shift so they can plan properly, or there's not the right system in place for changing shifts. Somewhere in there is a system that's broken. And then once we fix that system, then again, it goes back to now if people aren't following that system, that's a development issue. So it starts with what's frustrating, what's challenging, What's harming your business? Where are your fears, your concerns? I'll go through exercises with people to get to the bottom of that. Then once we've built some of those systems, then we'll kind of go back to the beginning of my process, which is now do we have that kind of core four in place? 
Then we'll start looking at marketing. We'll start looking at finances. And there's some standard systems that I have for those particular different aspects of the restaurant business. While we're while you've brought those up, let's let's kind of go there. Let, let's talk about kind of strategies to bring customers into a restaurant. What what advertising is giving the best ROI? What what systems do you recommend there? Mostly digital at this point. We're gonna have to adapt those systems based on every different type of restaurant and the different owners' strengths. But we're seeing the best results in digital. Facebook advertising, Instagram advertising, even just organic Facebook posting, Instagram posting, TikTok, we're starting to see some really good results in restaurants. Email, believe it or not, email still works really, really well for restaurants. Uh, Loyalty programs, again, depending on the type of restaurant, loyalty programs work really well. If you're a higher end restaurant, it's still a loyalty program. We just call it a membership. And as members, you get certain perks first, you know, thinking of a loyalty program as buy 10 pizzas, get one free. But we're sticking mostly to digital at this point. The print, it's just not performing. The one piece of print media that we see perform, again, it depends on the type of restaurant, are mailers, like door hangers or mailing of menus. If you're in that delivery, quick service type industry, we still get really, really good results from that. And it's very traceable, very trackable. It works really, really well. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, because I think that that digital measuring of ROI is such a such an important thing. Do you find you know fast casual does better with certain social media platforms, or are there like is there any kind of rhyme or reason to to what types of restaurants work best in which spots? I think it's more about your target audience, right? The young we know the younger crowd. If you're looking for high teen, young adult crowd, they're going to be more on TikTok and Instagram. If you're looking for maybe 30, 40 year olds, they're going to be more on Facebook. So for me, when I'm working with a restaurant, it's less about what segment of dining there. And it's more about where their ideal guest is hanging out. That makes sense. That makes sense. And you know, it's interesting. One of the things we've been talking for for a little over 20 minutes at this point, and uh, we haven't really talked about the menu. Is the menu, how important is the menu of a restaurant to this equation? It is the important. I mean, without the menu, the menu is what you sell. Amazon, without all the products they have, is not Amazon. Your menu is your product. If you do not have a product that people want, no one's going to come. If you have a product that a lot of people want, but you're serving it the same way that other people are serving it, you have a commodity. And the problem with commodities is you can't raise your prices above everybody else. There's only so far your local gasoline station can go with gas because if they go too far, you'll just go somewhere else to get it. Gasoline is gasoline. If you're serving the same hamburger with the same bun and the same frozen french fries and the same iceberg lettuce and the same sliced tomato and the same jarred pickles and the same special sauce as every other restaurant in your community, it's no wonder you can't raise prices. So absolutely, menu is critically important to the success of a restaurant. So as, as a restaurant is looking to, to plan their menu, what, what are some of the common pitfalls they should avoid besides obviously serving the same burger that everyone else is serving? Well, there may not be anything wrong with serving the same burger everyone else is serving as long as you understand that that's going to be your market, that you're just a commodity burger place. So now what you're looking for or what you need to understand is your location has to be for that. It has to be quick to get in, quick to get out. 
You've got to be able to get your food out at the same pace and the same prices as everyone else. And there's plenty of commodity restaurants that make a lot of money. You just have to know that that's your market. Unfortunately, what I see a lot of times is I see people who think that they're something unique and something special, but they went into a commodity location or vice versa. Um, so I think it's it's not that one is better than the other. Again, it's just I don't think restaurant owners take enough time to really go deep and think about who's their ideal customer. Does this location match that ideal customer? What does this ideal customer want on my menu? And am I able to give it to them at the price that they're willing to pay for it? So those are the processes that I would go through if I were working with someone on developing their menu or potentially editing, changing, updating their current menus. Great. And that's going to bring us to a section of our show that we call our Fan Blitz questions. So these next five questions come from our YouTube community. You can check out Upflip on YouTube, join the community, and we'll give you the opportunity to pose questions to our upcoming podcasts guests. So these, uh, you know, quick hit answers here as we go. Uh, Fan Blitz question number one from Alfonso Sandoval. I live in Spain in a very tourist area full of restaurants and cafes. If I wanted to open a restaurant, what can I do to stand out from so much competition? First thing, get subscriptions to every food magazine, watch every food show you could watch, follow all of the most popular Instagrammers or YouTube personalities on food because they're going to be a year or two ahead of the trends. So instead of copying what your neighbors are doing and maybe improving upon it, find out what the influencers are doing and do more of that. Question number two from Angelia. What happens if your advice doesn't end up helping the business? Do you experiment with your advice? I don't experiment with the advice I give to clients without an asterisk. I will tell them, hey, this is a different situation than I've ever experienced before. The advice I'm going to give you is not something that I have tested and proven before. So are you willing to try this or can we try this? But I have a rule, a, a human rule, a rule with myself of integrity that I don't teach concepts and processes and techniques that haven't been proven before unless I warn them and let them know, hey, I think this will work and here's why. But full disclaimer, I've never tried it before. This one from Wandering Soul, how to expand your restaurant franchise? Is it better profit-wise for the company to manage all of its branches? Generally speaking, I hate franchising. So the answer is absolutely 100% yes. <laughs> there's always outliers. There's always exceptions. But for so many reasons, I have some videos on my YouTube channel. I hate franchising. I think franchising is selling your soul to the devil. There are always exceptions out there. And there are franchise groups that do a phenomenal job Unfortunately, I think they're the outlier. They're the exception, not the rule. I try to get all of my clients who are ready to scale to pursue multiple different methods of funding and multiple di different methods of growing. And there's a lot of really creative ones out there. But franchising is not one that's at the top of my list. Now from Stephen C., how to deal with staffing problems when nobody wants to apply for a job at two times the minimum wage? So I don't believe deep in my heart that nobody wants to work and nobody wants to apply for a job. I believe deep in my heart that we just haven't made the job good enough for them. Like I said earlier, some of that is money. We're experimenting right now with really high pay rates and we're seeing really good applications coming in. Yes, the pay rates are high, higher than most restaurants are comfortable with. 
but we're just sort of testing it and seeing, and what we're getting so far is really good. We're seeing people who have good jobs thinking about leaving them because the pay is so good. And then what we're going to see is long-term, does that give us the return on investment that we need? And I think it will. But that also leads to kind of the second part of that, which is the people who have good jobs are not looking for jobs. And that's historically always been the challenge all industries face, but especially in a transient industry like the restaurant industry, a good cook is being paid well and being taken care of well already. So they're not going to leave. So when we put out job ads, unfortunately, a lot of times we're only getting the people who were either recently fired or quit because they were about to get fired. Or maybe there is that outlier. But again, that's not normal. That's not the people who are mostly applying. So a lot of this is building a reputation, right? We say real estate, real estate, real estate for locations. I say reputation, reputation, reputation for hiring. If you have a reputation of a place that helps people achieve their goals, that makes them better, that helps them get further along in their career, treats them really well, and is a great, fair, fun place to work, you will have more applicants than you know what to do with. Last fan blitz question. This one from Nicholas Habert. Uh, How do you do your marketing to build your consulting business? YouTube. Mostly. We dabble in different social media platforms, obviously email marketing, but we use YouTube to be our main lead generation source. So we put out a free video every week, a high value, high content, low call to action video. And then that will bring people to a blog on our website or to maybe a free offer like download our toolkit. We have a toolkit with like a hundred different resources for restaurant owners. That's completely free. Our book, we give away our book completely for free. Uh, We just charge a a couple of dollars for the shipping, but then that's how we build our email list. And then we stay in touch with our email clients. And my goal or our email followers, I guess to say, my goal is that when we make an offer, they're ready for that. They, we have primed the pump. We have given them so much valuable information for free that when we do make an offer, they want it. They're ready for it. Or even at a higher level, I don't really sell. Like my coaching services, I don't sell those. I don't market those. I don't email those. People reach out to me when they're ready for a coach. And that's just been the process that we've always used. So I, I just believe in content marketing. I would say, would that be your your kind of primary advice for somebody who wants to kind of pivot into consulting and finding that is, you know, really establishing themselves as an expert through great free content out there and start to, you know, source leads as they come to them. Absolutely. That's been the model, right? Nothing really changes in the world. Like marketing hasn't changed. Advertising hasn't changed. Just the mediums that we use. But if we go back 50 years or 100 years or whatever, like you wrote a book, people read the book, they thought you were good, they reached out to you. It's the same thing now. You put out good information, you improve people's lives. If they get results from your free stuff, they're going to want to learn more about your paid stuff because if your free stuff is that good, your paid stuff must be amazing. How do you make that determination of what you're going to put out for free? Is there is there any like semblance to try and hold anything back for the paid customers or how are you making that determination of are we giving away too much? We always flirt the line. There's there's this sort of unwritten, unspoken rule in this expert industry where you give away the why and you sell the how. So you give away why this is important and maybe you talk about the feelings that they're experiencing so they can really understand 
that you understand them and they they see themselves in the solution and then you sell the how to the step by step. I'd say in our company, we absolutely cross the line. We definitely give away some of the how. Some people on my team might say we give away a little too much of the how, but I'm on a mission, man. I'm on a mission to change this industry. I got beat up by this industry. I got spit up and chewed out by this industry. And I don't want anyone else to go through anything close to what I had to go through as a cook. I mean, there's a reason I'm not a chef right now because the industry chewed me up and spit me out. Now, I love what I'm doing. I think everything happened for a reason. But yeah, that's the general rule. And I cross it all the time because my mission is so much bigger than making a couple extra sales. I want to change this industry. I want this industry to be a place that people come to without being told, oh my God, you don't want to go to the restaurant business. Restaurants fail all the time. It's such hard work. I want people to be jealous of other people in the restaurant industry. I want people to live in nice homes with white picket fences and drive nice cars as a manager in a restaurant. And tell me a bit more about about your 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 team and what kind of a regular work week looks like for you and your and your company. So my work week is basically Monday through Friday. I start work at seven thirty to eight a.m. I'm I'm usually in front of the computer about fifteen about fifteen to eight, and then I work straight through until six o'clock. Except for Thursdays, I take Thursday afternoon off to play golf. My goal is to take Friday afternoons off to pick up my son from school and go do something fun with him as he's getting older. We're getting closer and closer to that. We still have some work to do. But for the most part, that's what I work. Every once in a while, there'll be the exception, the weekends, the nights. And then my team is all virtual. I have no employees in the traditional sense of the word. So all of my team is free to work when they want. We do have a couple of team meetings throughout the week. I have some team members in Canada, some in the Philippines, some in India, some in the United States. We've had people help us pretty much from all over the world. But for the most part, I think we have one, two, I think we have like seven people on our team right now doing different things for us from Facebook advertising to Google advertising to copywriting to project management to software development to website services, video editing, things of that nature. And what is what does further scaling look like for you? I mean, is there a point where you need to to clone yourself to to get more more hours in the week? Or what does that that long-term trajectory look like? For me personally, it is not cloning myself. I know that is a model to create like certified consultants in my system. That's not the model that I'm going to choose to go with. Uh, Scaling for me is going to be working one-on-one with less higher paying, higher impact restaurant groups and clients, and then doing more group coaching for my more one-on-one clients And then eventually, as we get closer to retirement, it'll be really getting away from even that group coaching, only working with a select few high impact, big restaurant groups, and then doing more keynote speaking, book writing, things like that. Wonderful. Before we let you go, I do have a few more questions about the restaurant industry specifically. You know, obviously, one of the things that it means if someone's come to you, they're probably looking to be a better leader in the restaurant industry. And so what skills and traits make an exceptional leader in this industry? You've got to have a passion and an understanding for developing people. This industry does not attract. And again, everything I'm saying has exceptions. So so please take everything with a grain of salt. But this industry historically doesn't attract 
the highest levels of education, people with master's degrees, advanced degrees, the most motivated, right? It attracts people who are looking for that freedom, people who are maybe artists, they're passionate about food, they're passionate about cooking, they're passionate about having fun, they're looking for a more relaxed schedule. And so if you're not able to understand that mindset, if you're not able to nurture that mindset, if you're not able to help those people, that personality, I should say, grow and develop as their life changes, as their needs change, you're going to really struggle to develop a team big enough to support maybe your goals. You know, every restaurant that I work with that wants to get a second location, a fifth location, a 10th location, a 50th or a 100th location it's absolutely 100% of the time going to come down to their ability to attract and develop talent. If they can't attract and develop talent at a pace as fast as they want to grow, there's nothing we can do to replace that. As they grow that talent, what point is it that a restaurant owner should hire a manager for their restaurant? Well, if their goal is to grow, like to scale to multiple locations, they got to get someone in there as soon as possible, like yesterday. I do work with clients who their goals are not to open up other locations. They want to squeeze the rag. They're, this is their job. This is, their, this is what they're going to do. They want to do it as well as they can, make as much money as they can, create a business that someone can take over, a family member or something. And so for them, it's just more about kind of creating a more calm environment, a more peaceful lifestyle, maybe a lifestyle with a little more freedom. For others, it's about growth. And I would just say that if your plans are to grow and open up a second, third, fifth, tenth location and you're still doing the job, there's absolutely no way you're going to be able to do the job in two restaurants at the same time. So you got to get someone in there and start getting them up to speed on your day-to-day activities so you can go off and do the next one. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you see first-time restaurant owners make that causes their restaurant to fail? I think we touched on it earlier. It's definitely about the design of the restaurant. When I say design, I don't mean the colors or the architecture. Well, that's part of it. What I just mean is the business model. Did we pick the right concept, the right menu, the right pricing, the right service model for this location? There's this constant struggle. In my opinion, there's only two ways to do that. I'm a very black and white person. There's no gray in my life. So you either have a concept and you're looking for the perfect location to fit that concept, or you're looking for a location and then you'll develop the perfect concept for that location. While that's how the big guys grow, and that's how my clients who have been very successful at scaling grow, most first-time independent restaurant operators get somewhere in the middle. They have an idea of what they want, and they have an idea of a location, and then they compromise on both. Well, that location was too expensive, so I'm going to go with the cheaper location. Well, there's a reason that location was expensive. It's because it was a great location. Now you compromised on that. Now your concept doesn't fit, or vice versa. They find a good location, like it has a lot of people, but maybe it doesn't have parking and their concept needs parking, but they compromised on it because they really like this location or something like that. And now they're in the middle. They're stuck. They don't have the pizzazz or whatever it is that they originally set out for. So absolutely no question about it. It comes down to the right concept in the right place, serving the right food at the right prices to the right customer. As it comes down to to controlling some of those costs, you know, we're we're speaking in a moment where there is, you know, high inflation and food costs are rising. 
So what should restaurant owners be doing to either lower food costs and or how much of that can they pass along to customers? (laughs) Well, a year ago, I would say you got to be really careful raising prices because every time you raise your prices, you introduce competition. What I always say is like Chick-fil-A or In-N-Out, Chick-fil-A, In-N-Out, if you're listening to me, don't get this wrong. Your food's fantastic. But the burger in In-N-Out is not the best burger you've ever had in your life. It's the best burger you've ever had in your life for $3.50. If In-N-Out was $8 for a hamburger, they wouldn't have lines as long as they do. So what In-N-Out's able to do is they're able to sell an incredible hamburger or a great hamburger at a really good price while still offering great service and great efficiency and all these other things. Great. So what I always say is no one could compete with that. So every time you raise prices, you introduce yourself to competition. However, in this environment, we are absolutely having to raise prices because our prices are going up at an astronomical rate. I've always been a fan of raising prices. I always said, you should be raising your prices every two to three months, but you should be raising 20% of your menu every two to three months by a nickel here, a dime there, a quarter maybe. And of course, we'll be more scientific with that, but that's kind of my general rule. So then by the time we get through a year, year and a half, pretty much every item on your menu has been raised and we just keep that process going. Right now, I mean, we're just blanket. We're just going across menus and just throwing a dollar on everything. And then three months later, we're throwing another dollar on everything. And it's very concerning to me. We have to do it short term. The long term solution to this is going to be technology advancements, systems advancements, process advancements, because people are not going to pay these prices for the quality and service that they're getting today. They're going to want to see an improvement in that. And so we're seeing sort of this third generation or second generation of restaurants that are being developed right now that are going to be able to serve better food at better prices with better service at lower prices than anyone's able to do right now because of massive investments in technology, infrastructure, training systems, processes, right? We've seen it in all other industries. We just haven't really seen it in the restaurant industry yet. So short term right now, yeah, we're raising prices. But every time you raise your prices, you introduce competition. So you better also be developing whatever your next future concept is or your next iteration of your current concept, because we're going into a recession right now, whether you like it or not people are going to start to get a lot more careful with where they're spending their dollars. So we're going to need to see changes. Is there a common blind spot that restaurant owners often have that then causes them some of their biggest headaches? Or is it really based on the individual? There's absolutely a blind spot. And I think it's to, are they really offering what people want? Whether it be in service, in price, in quality, in quantity, in flavor, we're all biased. We all believe that what we do is better, right? Have you ever talked to a restaurant owner that said their food is average compared to their neighbors, Uh, right? Every restaurant owner, my food's better than them. Why are they busier? Well, it may be better than them, but is it better in the way that your customer wants it? Maybe your food is better, but they want it faster. Maybe this particular clientele in your area doesn't care about quality. They want speed. Or maybe a customer in your area wants quantity, not quality. So I think the blind spot, again, I've said this like six times throughout the podcast, but I think it kind of comes back to the same thing. I think the blind spot is really understanding what your customer wants and are you delivering it to them? Are you not just delivering it, but are you exceeding their expectations? 
Ryan Gromfin, the restaurant boss. Uh, thanks for joining us today. But before we, before we let you go fully, I want to give you a chance to tell our listeners exactly where they can find you. Uh, the restaurantboss.com. We've got a website with some amazing resources. If you're interested in restaurants or if you just want to see kind of what we're doing, if you're consulting in another industry, but yeah, the restaurantboss.com. And then from there, you can check out our book, check out our YouTube page, check out our membership, uh, our coaching programs. We also have some software that I didn't uh, bring up at all earlier, but it's called ClickBacon. Uh, and you can go to clickbacon.com and check that out. But yeah, the restaurantboss.com would be your hub for everything. Fantastic, Ryan. Thank you again for joining us here on the Upflip podcast. I'm Alex Freeman. Join us next week for another great episode of the show. And also check out Upflip on YouTube. Check us out also on the blog, upflip.com slash blog, where we are constantly talking to entrepreneurs across many different industries about how they're operating their businesses. 